On a recent episode of Grit and Growth, we explored the reality of raising capital where none has been raised before with Indian entrepreneur Aditi Srivastava, CEO and co-founder of Pocket Aces. Entrepreneurship in India is flourishing, as today's guest Sandeep Singh knows well. We have seen returning entrepreneurs. The next generation of talent is coming out and starting their own companies. So whether it's a Flipkart, whether it's a Snapdeal, whether it's a Baiju's, all of these companies are now throwing out talent who are going on doing the next thing. Sandeep is the managing director of Mumbai-based Nexus Venture Partners. He's an expert in venture capital in India and has invaluable advice for ambitious entrepreneurs. That individual, when they're presenting to me, should get me as excited about the problem as they are. Because that's what they're going to do day in, day out. It's not sales, but it's motivation. It's getting that trust built in the other person that, hey, I can make this happen. I'm Darius Teeter, and this is a masterclass by Grit and Growth with Stanford Graduate School of Business, the show where Africa and South Asia's intrepid entrepreneurs share their trials and triumphs. Today, Sandeep Singh shares his knowledge and experience in the world of venture capital. We hear about what sets the Indian investment landscape apart, how Sandeep decides which markets and ideas to invest in, and the single most important characteristic he looks for in an entrepreneur. So without further ado, over to you, Sandeep. So I went to Stanford, graduated in in 1987, worked for a startup in the Bay Area that was funded by a VC. So I got an opportunity to actually see how a VC-funded startup works. That company was eventually acquired by Digital Equipment Corporation. So I actually saw the whole journey from the time that the company was started to the time it was exited. It wasn't a great exit for the investors, but uh, it was an interesting product that was built. Subsequently, I went to business school and joined McKinsey. And while I was at McKinsey, I came and spent some time in India in uh, 1997. And at that time, there wasn't really any real VC in India. There weren't uh, any early stage investors. And so there wasn't really risk capital available at that time. I, I saw that gap, went back to the U.S., uh, pretty much cleared my mind that I wanted to do something in that space, ended up partnering with a fellow McKinsey uh, partner, and we started eVentures. And that was uh, set up as an incubator. And so from our perspective, uh, it was a play around two areas. One was uh, looking at the internet economy and seeing how we could bring global models to the Indian market. And the second focus area was looking at uh, global services, Indian companies that could provide services to global clients. You're the managing director of Nexus Venture Partners. Can you tell me a little bit about the firm and, and its investment thesis? So the fund itself is based out of the Bay Area. So we have an office in Menlo Park and we have offices in India. So we have an office in Mumbai, which is where I'm based, and an office in Bangalore. We uh, had two clear areas of uh, investment that we felt were opportunities for in a cross-border fund. The two areas that we identified, one was cross-border technology companies. So these are companies that are starting in India but have a global customer in mind. The second uh, area where we felt there was an opportunity 
was the domestic consumption play. India started seeing significant growth on domestic consumption in the 2003-2004 timeframe. And we felt that that consumption would move more and more towards digital platforms. What would you say has been the biggest improvement in the uh, startup landscape from an investment capital raise standpoint over this past 15 years? This is just that deepening of experience, more opportunity brought more talent into the early stage funding space? Absolutely. Uh, the first thing was that you had role models emerge. So we funded Make My Trip in the original 2000 timeframe. By 2006, 2007, Make My Trip was a reasonably large company. They had a business model that was, was scaling. They had initially started with a cross-border play between bringing Indians back to India from the US and other markets. But by the time 2006, 2007, they actually had a domestic market play as well. So uh, one was somebody could look at what Deep Calra had built at Make My Trip and say, hey, I can build something similar. Maybe in a different area, but I can build something similar. So there were, in some ways, rule books that were available for, for founders to base their businesses on. Second, uh, capital, whether it was us, uh, a couple of other funds got started at the same time, capital became available. And uh, third big shift that happened was that Talent started coming to startups. In the earlier days, the best talent would go to large companies. So you had the Unilever, the McKinsey's of the world getting the best talent. But by 2006, 2007, if you had a funded startup, you could potentially get some of the best talent from the business schools or from the you know IITs and so on. The other thing that has happened is we have seen returning entrepreneurs. The companies that started in 2006 onwards, I think because they have only seen growth from then on, they've never seen a downturn, real, a real downturn. The next generation of the talent in those companies is coming out and starting their own companies. So whether it's a Flipkart, whether it's a Snapdeal, whether it's a Baiju's, all of these companies are now throwing out talent who are going on doing the next thing. How is the India investing environment different from Silicon Valley today, or, or is it? So the Valley is still a lot more vibrant in terms of the idea exchange, in terms of uh, talent availability. There's just a lot more depth in terms of advisors, people who have sort of gone through the journey, maybe not even once, they've gone it twice or thrice. And people have actually adapted you know, in the Valley and, and in India, it's still early from that perspective. We are 30, 40 years behind. Uh, the other big sort of difference in some ways is India as a market has only started evolving towards a convenience-led approach in more recent times. What, what does a convenience-led approach mean? India has been primarily a value-based or a discount-based market. So most of the companies that have gotten created in India have used discounting and price as a primary means of competition. Now, when you do that, one of the big drivers, obviously, is the need for capital. That is changing partly. I think COVID has had a role to play. But the other thing is there is now more and more shift towards uh, 
the you know, consumer looking for convenience. And whether it is a Zomato or a Swiggy on food delivery, whether it is uh, an academy on education, people are willing to pay and they're willing to pay full price uh, or you know a, a good price, let's say not full price, but a good price for the services that they're getting. And that makes the unit economics more attractive. It allows companies to scale without it taking up as much capital. And it allows founders to compete based on product and experience and not just based on price. That in my mind is, is a big shift that's happened. Let's go into some of the basics of early stage investment. And I'm thinking here about some of the inefficiencies in the pre-seed and early stage investment ecosystem. You know, is there enough capital, enough high net worth individuals, enough angel investors out there for entrepreneurs to find? There are enough executives from large internet companies. There are enough high net worth individuals, family offices that are now doing angel investments in startups. So if you have a good idea and a good growth story, you should be able to find an audience. Today, yes. Uh, and interestingly, this uh, cohort of Y Combinator had, uh, I think, 40% of the companies are from India. That's the other shift that's happening is early stage capital is not just available from Indian angels, but Indian companies are now being looked at globally. You have all the accelerators from the globe now in present in India, Techstars is here, Y Combinator is here, AngelList is here. Uh, the availability to raise capital from a global pool is also increasing. Okay, I want to switch gears now and I want to play a little game of uh, investing true or false. And so I'm going to ask you to say true or false and then to provide sort of a one or two sentence explanation of why you answered true or false. So the first question is, Angel or venture investors will want their money back in five to seven years. True. The rationale behind that is we are working with a finite amount of capital and that capital has to be returned so that it can be re reutilized for the next stage of innovation. And if a company hasn't scaled enough in five to seven years, uh, and typically that would mean that they'll find it hard to scale from there on. The expectation for return on capital is different for emerging market angel investors than for Silicon Valley angel investors. False. Uh, I, I think angel investors globally are looking for high returns. And uh, today, Indian investors are able to go onto AngelList and invest in, in Valley-based companies and vice versa. So everybody's looking for the best company and the best return. So there's no artificial geographic friction anymore in the system. Capital will go where it wants to go. From a returns perspective, yes. Everybody, they want equally high returns. Next question. Founders will see 20% ownership in each investment round. Mostly true. There are companies where because of early market leadership, the founder is able to dictate terms and reduce the dilution that they see in, in each subsequent round. In most cases, you will see uh, a 20% dilution between prorator rights and ownership uh, for the new investor coming in. 
But I understand from talking to Aditi at Pocket Aces that sometimes investors will have a de facto board seat, but they won't want to take on the statutory liabilities of becoming an official member of the board. Is that a common practice? In India, particularly the global firms follow that more than the Indian firms. Okay, so next true-false question. Lead investors will always ask for a board seat. True. I have yet to see a round getting done where the lead investor did not ask for a board seat, so I would say it's true. Okay, next question. Founders will not hold a majority stake in their business post-Series A. False. You would have to have been very, very diluted at the seed level to have reached that position. So the only time when we see that is when companies struggle to scale at the seed level. Founders can overestimate latent demand and they end up struggling more to get to a point where they are ready for Series A. That does sometimes lead to uh, higher dilution at seed. If that happens, it's a tough situation for everyone, uh, the founders and the angels included, because typically a Series A investor does not like to be in a company where post-Series A, the founders are below majority. The board will have the ability to replace the CEO in later stages based on that person's performance. True. The board does retain the right to change the CEO. However, the founder has a lot of operating control over the business. So if they are doing a terrific job, the board will hardly ever replace a founder The idea is to have the founder scale alongside the company. And to do that, you have to think forward along with the founder. And either it is helping them find the right people to work with them to cover for the areas where they may not be experienced, or the founder themselves can pick up skills. One of the things we learned from Aditi at Pocket Aces was that having multiple institutions in a funding round meant that she looked to different investors for different advice and support. In some of the deals that you've done where you're side by side with somebody else, how do you work out who's involved with what aspects of advising the founder? Is that all happening on at the board level or where else is it happening? So it starts with the founder themselves, right? And this is not just a firm issue, it's actually the board member issue, right? So one of the things that good firms do is even though you have one board member who's representing the firm on the company's board, you're making yourself available as a firm to the founder. So that's one thing that at Nexus we we look at that a founder should be able to talk to any one of us, even though that person is not on the board. As a board, particularly on major issues, I think it is very important to coordinate. And we do that both within the board, we also do it within the firm. We have conversations around our companies, we get feedback from other partners saying, hey, this is, have you thought about this or have you thought about that? Sometimes, depending on how you know, you're thinking about the problem, you'll say, maybe you should go talk to my colleague on this particular issue because they've dealt with it in, a, in a, another company and they may be able to give you 
experience based advice rather than i may give you theoretical advice so i want to get a little bit into this whole question of how do you get to know an entrepreneur? How do, what characteristics are you looking for? When somebody walks in the door, what do you need to know about them? Number one is energy level. You can tell from a person in the way that they interact with you, what their energy levels are, and how will they sustain their energy as they build out the business. Define energy. It comes from passion. It comes from internal drive, but it's also about how you are seeing the desire to build a business. And good entrepreneurs just want to build something big, right? They're not coming in and saying, I just want to solve a problem. There are many people that want to solve problems, but these are people who are saying, I want to solve a problem at scale. I want to solve a problem with a good group of people. I want to build, I want to have people around me that are equally uh, passionate about building things. That energy, that passion sort of is the starting point. So they're not just a lone wolf. And they don't just have a compelling problem they want to solve. They have a growth vision and they at least have some people who are with them. That's correct. And so you're not looking at the numbers at all at first, or have you already done a bunch of due diligence before they even get in the front door? From a seed and series A perspective, it is less about numbers and it's more about people. Numbers really start coming into account in series B and series C. But at a seed and series A very few companies will have numbers that you can depend on for making a decision on a long-term basis. Right. I mean, they'll put something in front of you, but you both know that it's, it's vapor. What we do look for is size of market. So for us, it's very important that you're planning to target a large market. And the reason why I say planning versus saying you're targeting a large market is because there's a third part to this, which is focus. So you're passionate about solving a problem. You know that you're going after a large market, but you're doing it in a very focused way. So sometimes what ends up happening is the focus can make it appear that, mark, that the market is small because you know, you've defined a niche. You're, you're going after the, the top 100,000 customers that really need audio books, right? And it may appear like a small market, but you can walk me through and say, okay, if I get these 100,000, then I can get the next million. And then I can get the next you know, 5 million. So, so that's the third thing is focus. And many entrepreneurs struggle with that. That ability to walk me through why what you're doing right now will allow you the right to get to the next set of customers. How will you be able to take the learnings from your 3 million in revenue and scale it to 10, 20, 50, right? The, this is my growth horizon to get to this point. And then I'm going to go on to the next growth horizon and the next one, right? And an entrepreneur that's thinking that way is also very well aligned from an investor perspective because that's how investments work. You start by saying, okay, my first thing is I need to get to a product market fit. The next thing is I need to get to a GTM fit. I need to be able to have a, have a go-to market model which is repeatable, which is scalable. The next thing is I'm now going to be able to protect my moat, whatever I've created as a moat, right? So the, at each stage, you are thinking through what is the nature of problem you're solving in your business. And a good entrepreneur is able to sort of outline that. Third is, uh, or the fourth thing is, the ability to motivate. That individual, when they're presenting to me, should get me as excited about the problem as they are. Because that's what they're going to do day in, day out. Once they have the company and they're out in the market, they're going to be trying to convince customers 
They're going to try and con- convince the best talent and employees. They're going to be trying and con- convince the best partners to work with them, right? So they have to get me convinced. It's not sales, but it's motivation, right? It's getting it's getting that trust built in the other person that, hey, I can make this happen. And the final thing is the ability to listen and adapt. What you need to be able to, and this is what we test in the in the conversation, is we'll throw them a curveball. We'll we'll ask a question which would get you upset or which will sort of say, hey, this this just can't work, right? So and we see how the person reacts. Do they get upset? Or are they sort of thinking, why is this guy telling me this? What do I need to do differently? You can tell that this person's wheels are turning in their head and they're they're thinking about the problem. They're thinking so that ability to listen because the market is always telling you something. The competitors are telling you something. So you want them to have the passion and, persuade, and the persuasive power of an evangelist, but one who also listens. Yes, because if you don't listen, then you are stubborn. And the risk with being stubborn is you can hit your head on the wall and never be able to get across it. So another way I would think about this is you want someone who's in love with the problem they're trying to solve, not with their specific solution. That is a good way to put it. Okay, now I'm going to put you in the other chair. I want you to go back to your days of founding businesses and working in startups. You're in a conversation with a potential first round angel or or seed, let's not say angel, let's say seed or series A investor. How should you be uh, assessing this investor as a potential partner? Again, the starting point is, is this investor passionate about this problem? Maybe not as much as I am, but at least has enough passion and is thinking about this, not just from a standpoint of, okay, I'll bet behind Sandeep and he'll make me money. So this is a person who has thought about this problem, has a point of view on it, and uh, is therefore able to ask me intelligent questions. So they shouldn't be looking for someone who just says, you, you convinced me here, but let's do it. You actually ought to go past that because I think a lot of entrepreneurs would be so excited if that was the initial response. They would feel like they just hit a home run. I would at least ask the person, what about what I said convinced you? In a nice way. Is there anything that I could do that I should be doing differently? Is there anything that, you know, what is it that you think I should, you know, do more of? At least check that this person is just not a uh, lazy check writer, but is actually going to be a partner with you through the journey. Because you want more than the check. Yes, because see, any any startup is not a straight line. You are going to run into problems which you hadn't anticipated at the time of the fundraise. If there is an understanding as to why that investment was made, you can always go back to that and say, this is what we were looking to do. What was wrong with our assumption? And that ability to do that requires that there has to be some common set of assumptions between the entrepreneur and the investor. So if you haven't had that conversation at the start and the investor just gave, wrote you a check, then how do you have this conversation later? I want to just ask you a little bit about the due diligence process. We talked about you know valuations don't really mean much in these early stages, but is it a point of contention in the negotiation? In today's world, yes. Valuations have crept up. Uh, there is an expectation from all founders that they should get Silicon Valley-based valuations. Not all 
founders are targeting very large markets, equally large markets, or have the same capabilities that uh, some of the returning founders in the Valley or even in India might bring. So what ends up happening is uh, they read stories in the press that somebody raised $15 million in their C, you know, Series A round you know, at a 35 pre uh, money valuation. And they think that, hey, you know, if they can do that, ah, maybe I'm not as good, but maybe I'll get it at 25 rather than 35. And the real clearing price is 10, right, or, or eight. There is some level of expectation management that needs to happen in even early stage valuations. You've talked with so many founders and evaluated so many companies that are raising capital. What are the most common mistakes that entrepreneurs make during those early fundraising stages, pre-seed and early stage funding? So one of the things I tell all my founders is don't go to market stating a valuation expectation. You can share with the market what your last round post money was. You can share with the market how your company has grown from the last round, but leave it at that. Have the market tell you what they think is a fair valuation. Second is, it is important for you to have clarity on what are the risks that you're going to uh, face going forward in your business. We see a lot of situations where entrepreneurs come expecting everything to be hunky-dory all the time. And it isn't the case. It means that they're not good listeners. They're not sort of seeing, okay, here's a potential problem that I could run into. You should be able to imagine what, that once you had the money in your bank, what would you do with it? And what are the risks that you would see and how you would mitigate those risks? We have people that come to us for funding and they haven't even understood what their competitive landscape is. And that I think is just sloppiness. So those are the kind of issues that you know a founder should be should have a few conversations with friendlies. You know, obviously talking to your own existing investors and using them as a as a devil's advocate is very valuable. And existing investors should do that. They should not try and be cheerleaders for their founders. But in these situations, they should be very objective and play the role of an external investor. It's a tricky thing to do because you don't want to have that person get upset at you for you saying something. <laughs> you know, you would, uh, but, but it's important that that person hear it from you before they hear it from an external investor. I'm just curious, is there a question that you wish I'd asked you? What am I missing here? How do you look at various opportunities that come to you, right? So today I can have an opportunity that's coming in a company that's, you know, building the next marketplace. It could be an opportunity in the company that's building the next education uh, portal. There's a company that's coming to me that has uh, the next, you know, content play. Now, as an investor, I have to make choices because as a fund, we are looking to invest across 25 to 27 companies in a fund to create a, a portfolio. So I'm, I'm looking at either the stage of the company, I'm looking at the industry in which they are playing. So I'm making a, a, a overall portfolio. And so sometimes I may have too much of a weightage in a particular area, in which case I may not be able to invest in you. Nothing wrong with the company that you're running. Sometimes you see three great companies come to you around the same time. How do you make a choice you're basically saying I can only back one 
I only have capacity to do one. How do I make that choice? And that's where it's very important from a founder perspective to get to the right VC and have a point of view as to this fund is more likely to invest in a content play. This fund or this partner is more likely to back a marketplace and try and get as much information about the individual, not just about the firm. It's very important that you think through and look at the partners, look at what the partners are, are doing, look at what their interests are, what have they spoken about in the last you know, six months about the, their areas of interest. People talk about, hey, I'm looking at investing in this area. You need to sort of stay on top of that. As a founder, I think going in prepared with an understanding of how the investor ecosystem looks like can be very helpful in a very ef- running an efficient fundraising process. So how many deals do you look at a year? And of those, how many do you actually invest in? And then I want to talk a little bit about the ones you turned away. Normally, we would do seven to eight deals a year. These are Series A investments. So we would probably do an equal amount, maybe more as seeds. So in the course of a course of a year, we'll probably end up doing about 20 investments or 18 investments out of which eight would be Series A's and eight to 10 would be, would be seed investments. Our Series A investments would range between say three to 7 million. And our seed investments would typically be anywhere between 250K to a million. Sometimes we'll go slightly higher. We expect that in our seed investments, maybe a fifth of them or a quarter of them would make it to a Series A and others won't. So these are very fundamental risks that we're taking. And uh, to get to this number, we would probably see on average 500 to 600 companies a year. So you're saying no an awful lot. Yes. And what we do is we say no quickly and we know we will get things wrong for us a lot has to do with the founder and the team so sometimes you know you can look at a a plan and say you know the space doesn't make any sense but something about that plan says i should at least talk to the person so we will do a call with the person and and sometimes you say you know this may not be the right problem that he's he or she is solving but they are just a great just amazing team. So let's go back and look at a seed investment and and see where they go. What I find fascinating about this is in the seed round, the personality of the founder and the team are so important. When you're letting them down, when you're when you're in the room with them and you're and you're going to say no, in a sense it must be hard for them to take because you're saying no to them based on their personality, on who they are. And do they understand that? And how do they respond? I mean, I would love to hear an example of, of an unsuccessful pitch and how you handle it and how the founder accepted that. Normally, we will let the founder know that either it is because of the space or it is because we felt that there was something in the way that they were presenting or, or, or the, the way they were taking the solution forward that we weren't comfortable with. It's not your role to be their psychiatrist. No, but we will say, hey, listen, you know, we think that you are too focused on marketing and this needs uh, you to build a better product first. 
before we go and spend money on marketing. Or it could be that you need to build a team around you. You know, you're, it's, a, it's an interesting idea, but we just don't see a team that can execute against it. Sometimes that person will say, thank you for the feedback, goes and works on it for the next three months and then comes back. Others will just say, you know, no more deal with this, let's move on. <laughs> so can you share a story of a time when you didn't invest and then regretted it later? So we did not put money into Ola. Ola is India's equivalent of Uber, right? So Ola is the largest uh, player in the taxi space. And uh, the reason why we didn't do it is because when he initially started, the regulatory frameworks did not allow taxi hailing through an app. And so there was a risk of either director liability or potentially this thing being shut down by the government. And so we didn't want to take that risk. We uh, did not invest in Freshworks at this point, other than Zoho, it's India's largest sort of software SaaS company, because uh, our view was that they were at the point that they came to it for investment, they were effectively a copy of Zendesk. Interestingly, the initial growth that happened was because the Zendesk founder wrote a rant and uh, complained about how Freshdesk had just totally copied Zendesk and how they were just trying to compete on price. And any customer that you know was looking for a help desk solution at the time and felt Zendesk was too expensive went to Freshdesk. <laughs> so <laughs> infamy is as important as fame, right? You take what you can get. Even if they're copying something that is global, how will they differentiate? And, and Girish had a, had a clear path of how they would differentiate themselves vis-a-vis Zendesk, and they've done that. And that brings us to the end of today's masterclass. I want to thank Sandeep Singh for sharing his insights with us today. From Sandeep's perspective, early-stage investment decisions are often based less on the numbers and more on the people involved. For entrepreneurs to attract strong partners, they need to demonstrate real insight into the competitive landscape of their market. And to build businesses that solve problems at scale, founders need to have a strong internal drive. And for Sandeep, what he looks for an entrepreneur is clear. Number one is energy level. That individual, when they're presenting to me, should get me as excited about the problem as they are. This has been a masterclass from Grit and Growth with Stanford Graduate School of Business. And I'm your host, Darius Teeter. If you want to find out more about how Stanford Graduate School of Business is partnering with entrepreneurs throughout Africa and South Asia, visit seed.stanford.edu slash podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to hit follow and share it with a friend. Grit and Growth is a podcast by Stanford Seed from Stanford Graduate School of Business. Lori Fuller researched and developed content for this episode with additional research by Jeff Prickett. Kendra Gladich is our production coordinator and our executive producer is Tiffany Steves with writing and production from Isabel Pillard and sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett at Lower Street Media. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.